Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Lord, minister, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in verse 21 of chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. As we've been doing a lot, it seems we've left off in the middle of the chapter. And so, and we also took a week off looking at uh, James last week. So let me just remind you of a couple things. Chapter 15 begins once again a confrontation that Jesus has with the religious leaders. And we've seen as we've gone through the book of Matthew that he is confronted again and again by the religious leaders. What's unique about this particular confrontation is that these are the religious leaders, religious leaders, that these are the folks that have come from Jerusalem to confront Christ. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, you might recall that their immediate concern with Jesus and his disciples is that his disciples do not wash their hands ceremonially before they partake of their food, the whole elaborate ceremonial cleansing that we discussed. That's their immediate concern. But really what their greater concern was is what we saw in the scripture there, which says that they did not keep the traditions of the elders, i.e. you do not keep our traditions. That was their immediate concern that Jesus wasn't falling in line as he should, and as we saw, they weren't too happy about that. So they confront Jesus. They confront him on breaking their traditions, and he confronts them. He confronts them on breaking God's commandments. You have to choose. Do you want to break the traditions of the elders or the commandments of God? I'd rather be on the side of breaking the traditions of the elders. And so he confronts them for breaking God's commandments, and in the process, He offends people for doing so. And the disciples point that out. And so look at verse 12 before we get into our study today. Matthew 15, 12 says, Then the disciples came and they said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I just think that's the greatest of lines here. Uh, Lord, don't you know you offended them? Yeah, I, I picked up on that as well when they called me names. You know, I picked up on that, that they were offended. It's a tense situation, certainly. But it's not a situation that Jesus shied away from. So it's not as if Jesus didn't realize what he was about to say to them was going to be offensive to them, and thus he didn't do it. He felt the need that they needed to be offended because they were wrong. The religious leaders are wrong, and they needed to be told that they were such. And if that offended them, well then, so be it. I think additionally, because the religious leaders were wrong, they were leading the people astray. And thus they needed to be told, the people needed to be told that the religious leaders were wrong. And so he explains it this way in verse 14. He says, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And so Jesus looking out for the multitude of people there, the the people that are listening to the religious leaders says, look, somebody's got to be confronted because people have fallen into a pit here and it's not good. So, in order to protect the crowd he points that out now all of that took place back at the sea of galilee and remember all the towns that are surrounding that area all of these events or that event that i just described to you is taking place by the sea of galilee now as we move on to today's passage look momentarily at verse 21 15 21 says now jesus went away from there and he withdrew to the district of tyre and sidon Jesus went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. We saw previously that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to go over to a desolate place so he could have some time by himself 
with his disciples and they can rest. Well, now Jesus is going to go to this area that's called Tyre and Sidon. It doesn't tell us so much so here in Matthew 15, 21, but there's a parallel passage in Mark chapter 7. And I want to draw your attention to that because notice what, how Mark describes it. He says, from there he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon and he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Have you ever gone into a room and you hope nobody would know that you're in that room so you could have some time by yourself? Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and the whole crowd ran after him to get here. Now he is going to this area of Tyre and Sidon, secretively it seems, going into a particular house, not putting any signs up that he's in town. He just wants to go with his disciples and get away for a little while. Is that clear? Everybody understand that particular thing? It's, this is a time to get away. Now, the area of the Sea of Galilee, particularly the northern and western shores of the Sea of Galilee, they were almost exclusively inhabited by the Jews. This area of Tyre and Sidon is almost exclusively inhabited by the Gentiles, if not exclusively inhabited by Gentiles. Tyre and Sidon, they're two neighboring cities. They're outside of the land of Israel, and it's going to be important that you know this. Tyre and Sidon, two cities that did not have a great relationship with the Jewish people. The Jewish people who are just south of Tyre and, si Tyre and Sidon were actively hostile neighbors. The people of Tyre and Sidon were Gentiles, and they were people that were looked down upon by the average Jew. Additionally, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they were Canaanites. You're familiar with the Canaanites from our studies in the Old Testament. The Canaanites were those who formerly inhabited the land that came to become known as Israel. God displaced them so that the Jews could move in and take up their place there. No alliances between them going all the way back some 1,500 years. And so you have Gentiles and you have Canaanites. And it's while they're in the Tyre and Sidon that Jesus encounters, look at verse 22, and we're going to read the whole section in a moment, but it's while there that he encounters a Canaanite woman and that it says the Canaanite woman petitions Jesus to heal her demon oppressed daughter another setup here if you will Mark tells us this not only is she a Canaanite woman but she is a Syrophoenician and then he points out that she was a Gentile now the reason Mark adds that she was a Syrophoenician I believe is because the Syrophoenicians were particularly a pagan, capital P, that is the religion of paganism, a pagan people. And they worshiped the goddess Asherah. And as with most pagan religions, the religion was filled with sensuality and with sin associated with the worship of their deity. It was a religion which gave itself to passion and instinct. The idea being, if the urge is present, then one should indulge that urge without restraint. Now, Phoenicia was a region that was just north of Israel. Today, it would be comprised of the nations of Lebanon and parts of Jordan and parts of Syria. And so you see there with Syria, the same root, Syro-Phoenician. And again, two of the cities in that region are Tyre and Sidon. And as I said, the Jews did not have a very good relationship with these neighboring cities. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, he wrote this of the relationship between the Jews 
and the, uh, the Syrophoenicians, he said, of all the Phoenicians, the Tyrians have the most ill feeling toward us. Not a good relationship at all. But despite all of that, Jesus journeys some 50 miles over mountainous terrain through what has been described as often, impa- quote, often impassable roads. He travels all this particular distance to withdraw to that particular district. Okay? Now let's read the account of the events now they have a little background of where Jesus is going. It starts in verse 21. Now Jesus went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and they begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So again, we're outside of Jewish territory. A Canaanite woman, she comes, she approaches Jesus, and she says, Have mercy on me, Lord. Son of David, she calls him. And the reason why, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And just as we've been seeing again and again, somebody that is desperate for Christ comes to him for his help. Her case in particular involves the fact that her daughter is demon-oppressed. And notice she comes and she cries for mercy. And in doing so, she refers to him as the son of David. Do you see that there? Now, based on the setup that I just gave you, something surprising should be should should draw to your attention based on what she calls him and where she's from and who she is. Because the term son of David is not a term that the Gentiles would use if even be familiar with. The term, the term son of David is a messianic term that was used by the Jews to refer to the descendant of David that they were awaiting who would save his people. It was a term to refer to the Messiah that the Jews looked to. And so this term, the son of David, it was a term used by Jews, not by Gentiles, yet this lady uses the term. And so it seems as if this lady has heard of Jesus. And it seems as if this lady has already formed an opinion about who the Messiah of Israel was. Well, how would she know him? Fifty-some miles away could have been five billion miles away in that particular day. No TVs, no radio, and things like that. So how is it that she could know him? And I'm going to suggest to you, and again, it's my understanding of things. You can have your own opinions about things. But Mark chapter 3, I think, gives us a clue. Now, Mark chapter 3 is earlier on in the ministry of Christ. It would correspond with some of the very early chapters, maybe as early back as Matthew chapter 8 of the book of Matthew. And in Mark chapter 3, what we read is this. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and even from beyond the Jordan and from way out around Tyre and Sidon. So the the connection that I want to make is this. I don't think that's this woman, but I think there were people from her town 
that had encountered the ministry of Jesus a year earlier, a year and a half earlier, and had gone back to their town and said, you should see this guy over there. Now remember, the people from Tyre and Sidon were in a Jewish area at this time. When they're at the Sea of Galilee, that's a Jewish area. And so people, no doubt, in that Jewish area that are watching what Jesus is doing and the crowds are forming, some of those Jews there, no doubt, are saying things like, could this be the son of David? Well, what's the son of David? One of the Gentiles would have said, well, that's our Messiah. That's the one we're waiting for. And I suspect, I suggest to you this, that some of those guys that have gathered there have gone back to Tyre and Sidon and said, there's a guy there that the Jews call the son of David the Messiah that they've been expecting, and you should see the things that he is doing, the people that he is healing. Now this lady, she has a demon-possessed daughter. And no doubt she's thinking, if only he were here, he could heal my demon-possessed daughter. And imagine her surprise when someone told her that he is here. And so she goes and she finds him, she seeks him out, and she begins to plead with Jesus for mer- or to Jesus for mercy that he would heal her daughter, that he would do what he had done previously. I think it's very interesting to have this story juxta- juxtaposed with the one that we studied two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, you had the Jewish people in a Jewish land refusing to accept the Jewish Messiah. Now you have a Gentile woman in a Gentile land eager to accept the Jewish Messiah. It's so interesting that these two stories are side by side. And she comes crying out to Jesus. Now notice Jesus' response. It's certainly curious, isn't it? Verse 23, Jesus, it says, did not answer her a word. She falls down on her knees. She's begging. She's pleading. And Jesus ignores her. It seems pretty odd to me, doesn't it, to you? Am I the only one? Thank you very much. Now he will eventually deal with her and talk to her and interact with her. But he doesn't do so initially. And there's a variety of reasons that are suggested as to why he doesn't initially address her. Some suggest because she's not of the house of Israel, and that thus she has no right to approach the Messiah of Israel, at least not yet. We, we talked about the idea that Jesus' primary focus during his earthly ministry was to the Jewish people, and so some suggest that's the reason, perhaps so. Others suggest that he is ignoring her for the purpose of testing her faith, if you will, will she persevere? Will she continue to petition him even after sort of the initial rejection of not being accepted by him? We don't necessarily know. But notice what verse 23 says here. The disciples interrupt Jesus' silence and they beg him, please send her away. Send her away. Now the idea is, Lord, give her what she wants so she'll go away. Now it says that she had been Uh, coming and begging him. Uh, It says crying out after us. It's a word which means crying out with a loud voice, screaming, yelling. You can imagine the commotion of it, the annoyance of it, perhaps that she won't stop yelling. And so finally, like, just heal her daughter so she'll leave us alone. You know, these are great disciples here. Just give her what she wants so she'll go away. And so now Jesus does engage, verse 24, He answers, he says, but I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we do know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is the Savior of the whole world. But that being said, it's clear from the Gospels that his priority in ministry, in his earthly ministry, was to present himself as the Messiah of Israel. 
it was, as I said previously, as if they had the right of first refusal. And so here is Jesus simply saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it seems, again, rude that he's doing it. Here she is obviously desperate. Here she is clearly heartbroken. You would just expect him heal her daughter. But he doesn't. And I think the reason why he doesn't is because he's drawing her to himself. That by refusing her initial request, he's drawing out her faith, if you will, and forging her faith. And the reality is this. Her faith will be stronger by not initially receiving than it would have been had her initial request been granted or been met. Because each time that he says no to her, so to speak, even if it's just not responding to her, she's forced to decide whether she will petition again or just go away. You know, I think about our kids and they say, hey, can I have this? You know, and it's if it's like a Tootsie Roll, yeah, sure, kid. But if it's something big, can I have an iPod or something like that? And, you know, you say no to them. And then they come back a week later. And then oftentimes they forget they even wanted an iPod or Ma- Apple created something better than the iPod and they want that or whatever. But if it persists with them, I remember Larry Burkett. Larry Burkett was sort of like the... Dave Ramsey of the 1980s and 90s. And so us old people, we we listen to Larry Burkett for financial advice as believers. And Larry Burkett would suggest this. If you're going to make a significant purchase, wait 30 days. He would always say, wait 30 days. Because all of us are convinced, I need that boat, man. Oh, boy, I need that boat. You know, but you wait 30 days and you realize, that's dumb. I don't need that boat. I'll just rent one or I'll borrow his. He's got one. I'll use his and let him pay all the money. For or whatever, but just wait 30 days because then it kind of works itself out typically, and so we we do that with our children. And if they continue to persist and keep coming back, then you begin to look. Or if the idea of buying that boat continues to come back, then you begin thinking, all right, well maybe it is a good idea. Not sure how you make an argument for a boat, but nonetheless. So she comes back, and now every time that she does so, she has to essentially say to herself, "Should I go back or shouldn't I?" And so each time he says no, she has to make that determination whether or not there's anywhere else she will go. And each time she does come back to him, it's as if she's saying to herself, but you have to heal her. You're the only one that can heal her. You see, so what, th- what that's doing with her faith is building her faith more and more and more. Because if there was somewhere else I would go after the first no, the second no, the third no, I would go to somebody else. But if I keep coming back to you and keep coming back to you, I'm saying to myself, there's nowhere else that I can go. And that's building up my faith. And so notice in verse 25, she comes back to him, kneeling before him, it says, I'll read it to you, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Notice those words, she came and she knelt before him. Some of your versions will say she came and she worshipped him. And that's a good translation because that's exactly what the phrase means in some of our versions where it says she knelt before him. The phrase actually means she knelt down before him, worshipped him, and once again presented her desperate plea. I think many in our day, maybe in that day too, I'm sure in that day too, won't worship God until God does what they ask of him. I won't worship you, Lord, unless you do exactly what I ask of you. Then you get all the praise. But she noticed she worships him even before her prayer is answered. And you can hear the desperation in her words. She comes in the very simplest of terms, and she just says, and I'm going to add some, she says, please, 
She says, look, I know that I'm a Gentile woman. I know I have no right to come to you as the son of David, but Lord, please help me. Notice that. She says, Lord, help me. Notice that word, me, she says. Now, certainly this is the girl's mom. And as a mom or as a dad, so often our kids' difficulties, they do become our difficulties. But I think it's very interesting to note how her request for somebody else, her request for her daughter, has morphed into her request for herself. That sounds a bit negative, you know, going and, and just asking for things for ourselves. But it really, it's anything but negative. And what this woman is a great demonstration for us of is, is that the posture of an intercessor. An intercessor is one that goes before the Lord on behalf of another and persists in doing so to the point where another's needs become their own needs. And this woman does that. This, she says, Lord, help me. Not even, Lord, help my daughter. She's an intercessor, the perfect posture. She's also an excellent example of an intercessor is because she, she is one who comes to God in prayer on behalf of others. That is, she internalizes the needs of others as if they were her own, and she's persistent, and she doesn't stop until her prayer is answered. And despite her heartfelt request, look at verse 26. Once again, Jesus rebuffs her, and he says, and he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, when I was a young kid, I learned this lesson. It's never good to call a girl or a woman a dog. I learned that lesson as a kid. You never call a girl or a woman a dog. Even it's not really a compliment to call anybody a dog, you, you would think. It's interesting, the Jews, they commonly referred to the Gentiles as dogs. However, different from the circumstance here, the term that they used was to describe the dirty, ravenous, wild dog that were despised in the land. The kind you throw rocks at, get out of here, dog, that kind of dog. You know those dogs yeah. over there in Kenya? I've seen some of them over there. Jews didn't think too highly of Gentiles, and so they commonly referred to them as dirty, ravenous dogs, the kind that you don't want in your particular community. Jesus doesn't refer to her, though, as that type of dog. The type of dog he refers to her is the type of dog that was cute and cuddly and welcomed into your home as a beloved member of the family. And so when Jesus compares her to a dog here, it's not in any way meant to be, nor is it in any way received, as a put-down. And so when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, he's not putting her down in any way, and nor is she receiving it as such. I'm sure many of us have pets at home. Cats don't count, but dogs and things like that at home, I'm sure many of us have that dogs that are loved members of the family. That's the type of dog that Jesus is referring to. That being said... We have our loved dogs at home and, and they're members of our family. But I would suggest many, I would suspect that many of you don't invite your dog to sit at the dinner table with you and, you know, nestle right up there and knife and fork or whatever and, and eat the, the people food. Some of you probably do that. But even though, and, and we have counseling available, you know, if you do that. But even though we love our dogs, we say to them, hey, buddy, I love you, but your bowl's over there in the f on the floor in the corner. This is the people food. And mom and dad worked hard, or mom, in my case, I don't cook, but in my case, uh, just my wife does the cooking. But we worked hard to make a nice meal, and it's not for you. All right, You can have some leftovers. You can lick the plate when it is all done. 
What Jesus is simply doing here is he's presenting a word picture. And the word picture is designed to differentiate the members of the family, the Israelites, from the non-members members of the family, the Gentiles. And so he, he makes this statement about not even the dogs. Now, amazingly, this woman is not dissuaded. I love this lady. And she comes back again, verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, in making that statement, she says, all right, I'll play along with your little word picture. But what she's saying is, look, I'm not asking you to stop ministering to the Jews or change your whole scope of ministry or anything like that. I'm just asking for some crumbs to help my daughter. Notice she even refers to herself as a dog. She says, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs. She's comparing herself to do that. And in doing so, she is admitting her lowly estate and she is simply asking to be treated as one of our household pets are so often treated. Now, as an aside, remember where we started here, contrast her humble persistence with the proud and arrogant Pharisees that Jesus encountered earlier in the chapter. They refuse to be ministered to by Jesus. She refuses to not be ministered to by Jesus. And she's coming, she's acknowledging that she's completely unworthy and seeking nothing more than Jesus' mercy. And Jesus loves her for it. And he loves that she won't give up. Because she has passed the test, if you will. She has persevered in her faith and Jesus takes notice of that. So in verse 28, Jesus answered her, he says, O woman, great is your faith, be it done unto you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, as far as we have recorded, this is the only person Jesus actually spoke these words to, great is your faith. Now, we've already seen the example where he says of the centurion that he had great faith, but the centurion had gone away, and he tells those that are gathered that the centurion had great faith. This particular woman, he says to her, the only person that we have recorded that he ever said these words to, he says to her, O woman, great is your faith. She receives the commendation. It's very interesting to note that the only two people commended for the magnitude of the faith that they possessed were both Gentile individuals. And I think that should tell us something, that great faith often is found in places that we might not expect it to be. If you had to sort of hedge your bet as to who Jesus would have said had great faith, you would have probably picked a Jew in that day. Jesus said, come to the Jews. And yet, it's a Gentile, two Gentiles, that Jesus commends them for the great faith that they have. Sometimes, oftentimes, great faith is found in the most unlikely of places. And so I think in our day, we would carry that over. Great faith may oftentimes not be found in the person that got saved back in 1975 and went to church every Sunday of their lives since they were two years old or something. But it may be that drug addict that just got saved and is now walking in faith. It oftentimes may be found in the most unlikely of places, as it was with these Gentiles. Second thing to take notice here, Jesus commends these two for their great faith. Notice both of these Gentiles came to him on behalf of other people. And Jesus seems to be pleased by that. The Canaanite woman comes to him on behalf of her daughter. The centurion came to him or sent people to him on behalf of his ser servant. And apparently it pleases the Lord when people come to him on behalf 
of other people. And so he commends her for her faith. He heals her daughter. Now let's pick up in verse 29. I'll read to verse 31. Turn to your neighbor and say, how about that? Now, Jesus went on from there. He walked behind, beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet. And he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Notice in verse 29 there, Jesus is back at the Sea of Galilee. It says that he is walking along the shores, then he sits down on one of the mountains or one of the hills, and he begins to teach and minister to the people there. Now, you recall that the chapter began with him by the Sea of Galilee. Then when we, the passage we began in verse 21 today, he went all the way across from the east coast of the, the nation of Israel to the west coast, the shoreline of the nation of Israel. He traveled 50 miles across over the terrain that I mentioned was usually unpassable and so on. And he ministers in Tyre and Sidon. And now he's back over here at the Sea of Galilee. He had gone all that particular way. And what did he do with Tyre and Sidon? Did he hold a big crusade in Tyre and Sidon? Certainly not. We just read that he didn't do that. He went there and he ministered to one lady and healed her daughter. He went all of that way to minister to one person, a most unexpected person at that. And as I hear that, as I think about that, as I consider that, I think about our lives. How many of us can say the exact same thing? That Jesus went out of his way to find you or me, a most unexpected person, and he healed us. And he answered our prayer request, even if we didn't know what we were praying. I was praying, if you will, that God would save my soul before I even knew those words. And before I even knew what I was asking God to do, my heart was crying out, that he would save me. And he came into my life as he started when I was about 15, 16 years old, and I didn't even know what he was doing in my life. I didn't even know he was there. And yet I knew I had a need for a Savior. And finally, when someone came into my life and spoke the words of truth, all the pieces of the puzzle were finally there, and I got saved. And I was 17 years old, the most unexpected of people. And Jesus saved my life, just like he did that particular lady. He came all that way to find me, went all that way to find her. But now in verse 29, he returns to the area of the Sea of Galilee. Now Mark tells us that the area that he is in, this is Mark 7, he says he returned from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now the Decapolis, they were 10 Gentile cities, Roman cities, that were around the Sea of Galilee. And I said earlier in today's study that the Jews primarily lived on the northern shores and the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis were primarily on the eastern shores and in the southern portion of the Sea of Galilee. So specifically, that's where Jesus is returning to. Notice again that it tells us that they are Gentile cities. Keep that in mind, and also, if you will, keep in mind what Jesus had just said to this lady here, or she had commented, she said, but the but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And the dogs there referred to the Gentiles. That was back in verse 27. Keep in mind the fact that Jesus is now in Gentile cities. Verse 30, it says, Now great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, putting them at his feet, and he healed them. 
so that the crowds began to wonder when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, saying, or notice, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now you recall when John the Baptist was imprisoned. He had called out Herod for his sin. He was imprisoned for doing so. And we know that he was in prison for about 10 months. Somewhere during that period of 10 months, John, it seems, began to question as to where is the Messiah? Come on, Lord, start the revolution. Get me out of this prison. And so from prison, John sends representatives to the Lord. This is Matthew chapter 11 and says, they ask the question, are you the one, the Messiah, who is to come or should we look for another? It seems as if in John's life that the circumstances that he was experiencing and the fact that things weren't quite what he was expecting to be under God's Messiah, that he was experiencing those things that John begins to doubt or begins to question. And so he sends people to Jesus and says, are you the one who was to come? Now Jesus' response to the disciples, he says, you go back and you tell John what you hear and what you see. You go back and tell John that the blind received their sight. You tell him that the lame are walking, that the lepers are being cleansed, that the deaf are hearing, and that the dead are being raised back to life, and that the poor have the good news preached to them. Go and tell John those things, he tells him. And what Jesus does is this. Yes, we know what the expectation people had of the Messiah was, that he would sit on a throne and right all the wrongs, and that the Jews would be the most powerful people, and then they could tell the Romans finally what they thought of them. That's what the Jews of the day were expecting. What Jesus does instead is point John to the Scriptures and the prophecies. And the Old Testament prophecies, specifically Isaiah chapter 35, says this. It's of the, speaking of the one that would come. It says, Then the eyes of the blind, sound familiar, shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame men will leap like the deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 35. You'll see all of these things. And John would have known that, so Jesus reminds John, if you will, of that, and just sort of sets John's heart and his mind back to the place that it, it needed to be. He reminds John that though he may not be fulfilling the expectations of the everyday Jew, even of John himself, he is fulfilling the prophecies of old. And presumably that helpful reminder alleviated John's doubt. You know, sometimes we, we forget, don't we? And we just need to be reminded. You know, Scripture says that iron sharpens iron. And that's why I think it's so important that we enjoy fellowship with other believers. I'll be quite frank. Some of us, we come in here on Sundays, we, we wave to people, we shake hands during the shake hand time, and then we get right back out. And there's probably no more than five people that know your name. And maybe you don't know more than five people's names. That's not the way it's supposed to be in a church. You're supposed to know one another, love one another, care for one another. Because iron sharpens iron. And what happens is this. When I have my doubts and when I'm sort of down, I need somebody to come alongside of me and, if you will, strengthen my weakened legs or my weakened knees and keep me going and remind me of the truths that my circumstances are blinding me to. And just say, look, man, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm praying for you. You know the Lord loves you. You know he hasn't forgotten you. I'm like, yeah, I needed to hear that. Thanks. And it builds you up and it strengthens you. And so John, he has his doubts. He's forgotten, it seems. But he's being reminded. And so very, very important. Now, the reason why I bring John up in the context of our study is because, once again, 
Jesus is doing the very things that were expected of God's coming Messiah. He's healing the lame. He's giving the sight back to the blind, the crippled, the mute, and all of that. Now notice in verse 31, it says the crowd wonders. And that they, it also says there that they glorified the God of Israel. What they're wondering is if this could indeed be the Messiah of Israel. They're blown a mind. They're, their, their mind is blown, and so that's causing them, this is a wonderful circumstance, but they're also wondering, could this be the Messiah of Israel? And if you look at the last phrase there, where it says that they began to glorify the God of Israel, apparently many are concluding that this indeed is the Messiah of Israel. And so they glorify the God of Israel. Very important for you to notice, they don't glorify their gods, but they glorified the one true God. And Jesus is making an impression on them. And so we continue reading in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides the women and children, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. Now, we hear this story and, and perhaps you, like me, you think, wait a minute, didn't we, didn't we already read about this particular account here? Jesus feeding a multitude of people on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We did actually read of an account, but it's not this particular account. In that account that maybe you're thinking of or I'm thinking of, Jesus fed 5,000 besides women and children with five loaves and two fish. In this account, he feeds 4,000 besides women and children with seven loaves and a few small fish. And we're talking about two different accounts of his feeding two different multitudes of people. And I bring it up because it's important, I think, because there are some that suggest that the Bible contradicts itself in these two stories. Which was it? Was it 5,000 people or 4,000 people? Was it seven loaves of bread or five loaves of bread? Which one? It can't be both of those. Well, I don't understand why it's so hard to grasp. To grasp. It's two different accounts, two different stories that are going on here. Now, what is hard for me to grasp is how the disciples could have forgotten what Jesus had previously done, that they come to him now and say, we're in a problem. We had a problem here, Lord. We got all these people here and no food. Now, I suspect even that Jesus realized that these guys had forgotten the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And I think he brings it up on purpose. And so he says, look, I have compassion on the crowd. They've been with me all these days. They need to head home, but I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint along the way. He says, he says to the guys, he puts them through a lesson. And he says, all right, guys, we have a problem. This crowd has been with me three days. Any food they would, have had, they would have brought with them, by now they've certainly consumed it. And if they go now with their stomachs hungry as they are, they're, just gonna, they're not going to make it. They're going to faint from hunger. 
question. What should we do? He says to them. Now the answer Jesus would have liked to receive, I think, is, well, Lord, do what you did last time. Do the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. We'll call it the feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus would have said, ding, 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 you win the prize. But instead, what Jesus hears from them is, well, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? Now, this isn't just one guy that sort of forgot, you know, and says something dumb and then has time to think about it. And it's like, well, I'm sorry. I forgot all about the 5,000 thing. Never mind. Scratch that from the record. But it tells us here in Matthew 15, and the disciples, Mark tells us all of them, essentially, say to Jesus here, you've got to send them away. It's not one isolated disciple. It's the whole lot of them saying, Lord, there's nothing that we can do. We don't have enough resources. And even if we did have the resources, money, we're in the middle of nowhere. Where would we buy this much food for these people? Again, somehow they had forgotten. Isn't it good that we don't forget you know, there were such good learners, disciples, that once he teaches us, we're good to go. But Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And they respond, seven. We also have a few small fish. And I wonder if the Lord turned to one of the guys that was near him. and said, what do you think? You think that's enough? Seven loaves, a couple small fish? He might have. What we do know he did next is this. He directs the crowd to sit down. He says, get all the people to sit down. Or he tells all the people to sit down. And he gives thanks for the food. Then he gives to the disciples the food to distribute. I'll read it. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Now, when he directed the crowd to sit down, you would have thought that would have been the clue for the disciples because that's exactly what he did when he fed the 5,000. He said, have the people sit down. Back then it was in groups of 50 and 100. He gave thanks for the food, just like he's doing now, and then he began to distribute. But once again, somehow they had forgotten. But Jesus, in his mercy, he was merciful to the lady with the demon-possessed child. He's merciful to these guys too. And I think that's important. Because we all need mercy, as the song that we sang a little bit earlier here. And whether our, it's a big thing, like I have a demon-possessed child that I need you to heal, or it's just that I can't learn, Lord, unless you teach me ten times. We all need mercy. And when we realize that, I think we treat people differently, with much more respect and kindness and mercy ourselves, because we realize we're people that needed mercy ourselves. And so Jesus teaches them again. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, you know what, guys? I got a big job to do. I got a lot of responsibilities and my time is short. And if you can't get the lesson when I teach you the lesson, I'm going to have to move on to somebody else. You know, the Republican nominee, what would he say? You're fired. That's what you kind of expect Jesus would say to these guys. You just can't stay with me. I need people that can stay with me. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do it in our lives as well. He doesn't forsake us even when we blow it. Now, the devil will tell you that he does. And the devil will say, you know what, that's one too many times and drive you away from God. But don't let the devil, the devil's a liar, the devil's a deceiver. And as he attempts to drive you away, the Lord's like, where are you going? Come back to me. Confess your sins. I'm faithful, I'm just, I'll forgive you of your sins. But the devil will drive us away. Verse 37, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides 
the women and the children. Just like we saw in the previous account, oh boy, they all ate and they were satisfied. That word means glutted. They had eaten to the point where they can't eat any longer. The Bible says here that there were even leftovers. Back then, they took up 12 basketfuls here. It says they pick up seven baskets full. If you're interested, back in chapter 14, the term that's used for basket is like a small individual basket. I think my parents, we used to have, uh, for the summertime, little wicker basket kind of things, and you, know, you put a paper plate in it, and it's supposed to look formal you know, for your picnic meal or whatever outside here. That's the kind of basket that was in. It's a small one. This particular basket that is used, the same word is used in the book of Acts where Paul has to escape a particular city. I think it's chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And it says that they put Paul in a basket and lowered him down over the wall. That's the term that is used here. So I don't know how big Paul was, but if he was a normal human being, he's what, 5 foot 10 or something, 5 foot 5 or something. He's a big guy fitting in this basket. That's the baskets that were filled up this particular time. So they had a whole bunch of leftovers here. What I appreciate, look at verse 38. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. I appreciate just this. There's no attempt to embellish the numbers so that this miracle is better than the last miracle. And I think we do that. We try to embellish the numbers so we think, wow, that's fantastic. And so 10 people got saved at this particular outreach, and so we better have more than 10. You know, So 20 people got saved at this particular outreach. And there was thousands of people that had gathered. Now, there were thousands of people on the boardwalk, but they all didn't come around us to gather necessarily, but we say there were thousands. Or we take our pictures for the mission newsletter. No offense, Simpsons, I'm not suggesting you do this, but we take our picture for the mission newsletter, and if you get just in the right position, it looks like the crowd is thousands of people. And then we tell people, look at all the people that came, or whatever, and we embellish the numbers here. I really just appreciate... Their simplicity, their honesty, they don't change the numbers, they don't have to compete with the previous miracle. A miracle is a miracle. Whether it was 40 people or 50 people, 4,000 people or 5,000 people, the size of the number doesn't make the miracle any lesser or any greater. Is it any lesser of a miracle that a 12-year-old kid comes to know Christ and begins to follow, he or she begins to follow the Lord Jesus, or if it's somebody in their, their mid-20s. No, the miracle is salvation, and the rest is just details. And so we try not to get distracted by the details and instead focus on the wonder of the miracle. And so we have the 4,000 that are healed. And now our final verse, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. Some of your versions will say Magdala. And this is where Mary Magdala is from, this particular region. It's Jewish territory. It's not very far from Tiberias. It's on the western shore of the sea, and that's where we'll pick up when we come back together again in chapter 16. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, testimony that we read from Matthew today. Lord, of your mercy and your grace and your kindness, Lord, we think of just how long it took you to go 50-some miles over impassable roads to find that one woman. Lord, we think of the way that you drew out her faith and we think of her great faith and pray that we would have the same type of faith as she. Lord, we think of the crumbs that fell from the table of the Jews and the 4,000 
Gentiles that were ministered to by those crumbs and even numbers beyond that. And Lord, then we think of our own lives and the way that, Lord, you sought us out and you found us and called us to yourselves and, and Lord, yourself. And Lord, it causes our hearts to rejoice. Father, that's really good. And we're grateful for that. And so, Lord, thank you for coming, meeting with us this morning and minister to us. And Father, we pray for the one with us, those with us that may not yet know you. Lord, I even pray during this song. Lord, that you would show yourselves to them, yourself to them, opening up their heart to believe. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.